0: Do you have an author whose stuff you loved when you were a kid? If you were like me, maybe you didn't read everything they ever wrote, but they still have a special place in your heart. That's exactly how I feel about today's author. Since Halloween is right around the corner, I picked a spooky one. This is the child-friendly episode. Hello, earthlings and aliens, fairies and monsters. Welcome to everyone tuning in today. This is the Fantasy Podcast, where we take a look at science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read. Is it too old? Is the cover too weird? Did you already see the movie? We'll find out. I am your host, Erica Brickley, and I am absolutely in love with books. My favorite part is the discovery, which is why I organize my shelves by color to make finding things an adventure. All the books we cover during this podcast are from my personal collection. This is the fourth episode. Do you know what that means? It means that we have now worked our way through one whole book rotation. It goes like this. One, obscure titles slash Erica's choice. Two, a classic story. Three, cover art that makes you say, what? And four, books that are child friendly. We might change up this schedule in the future, but for now, I like it. So, let's take a look at today's choice. Just in time for Halloween, and perfect for recording on a rainy day, I picked a nice spooky one. While planning the first episode rotation, I looked through my shelves and considered many books by the brilliant Bruce Coville. I knew I wanted to start with something of his. He's an author I've loved all my life, and he's written some excellent stuff. Some of my favorites are the Unicorn Chronicles uh, and the Sixth Grade Alien books. I even have some old out-of-print covers for some of those. I also remember Jeremy Thatcher Dragon Hatcher from my local library. And browsing Brook website, I'm glad to see that so much of it's still available. And he continues to write children's books with his wife. After much deliberation, I finally chose The Monsters of Morley Manor for today's episode. It was published in 2001 by Harcourt Incorporated. Interestingly, the copyright page says that this is an expanded and edited version of something Coville wrote in 1996. The cover was illustrated by John Berg, though the title and co- uh, colors were designed by Kelly Nelson, and the bats at the beginning of every chapter were added by Lydia DeMuck. This book screams Halloween. I have a hardback copy, so it's nice and big, and the cover is metallic green and black. It's so shiny! Here is what the cover illustration looks like. There is an open box covered in designs, which seems to be quite small since there is a huge paperclip, penny, and nickel lying next to it. To my foreign listeners, pennies and nickels are American coin money. Coming out of the box are five strange characters. One, a vampirus with fangs, dark hair, and a cape. Two, a lizard man covered in scales. Three, Medusa with snakes for hair. Four, a hump-backed little man. And five, a werewolf in a shirt. Although they are all scary monsters, uh, they look really confused about where they are. I found this book at the perfect time when I was a kid. I loved monsters and Halloween and Greek mythology and all of that. And I also loved Bruce Coville. It was really nostalgic when I found this copy at a library book sale a few years ago, so I brought it home with me. Let's read the author bio together. Bruce Coville, the author of more than 80 books, was born in Syracuse, New York. He grew up around the corner from his grandparents' dairy farm and escaped his chores by playing in the swamp and woods behind his house, as well as through reading. His favorite writers included Hugh Lofting, Eleanor Cameron, and Edgar Rice Burroughs. Bruce has worked as a gravedigger, a toy maker, and an elementary school teacher, but now he writes, full-time when he's not traveling to speak at schools and conferences. He also produces and directs unabridged re- recordings of fantasy novels for children. Bruce and his wife, illustrator Catherine Coville, live in an old brick house in Syracuse, which they share with a number of strange animals and whichever of their three children happens to be at home at the moment. Bruce's best-known books include My Teacher is an Alien, The Skull of Truth, Armageddon Summer, written with Jane Yolen, and Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Hatcher. Let's see. Uh, So that's the part that's in the book itself. Uh, But on the dust jacket, we also have another bit. Bruce Coville's high high school colors were orange and black. Mine too. His favorite holiday is Halloween, and his grandfather ran a cemetery, all of which may have influenced his writing. My love affair with monsters began when a babysitter obligingly recounted the entire tale of Frankenstein to my little brother and me. How horrifying, how blood-chilling, how utterly delightful. Of course, it wasn't as easy to get your fill of monsters back then. Our TV got three channels, not 300. But we grabbed them when we could, and coming home from my neighbor's house at night, I would sometimes imagine that Frankenstein's monster was coming after me. This was even better on brisk October nights, when the cool air was whirling the gold and scarlet leaves around my feet. Was that a bat above me? Was Dracula on the wing? How could such fear be such bliss? There were times when I got so scared I couldn't sleep. But it didn't really hurt me. I came out perfectly normal. Jessica, just ask anyone who knows me. Uh, And then it gives another sort of brief summary of the other things, 80 books, Syracuse, New York, etc. So, just in time for the holiday, we have a Halloween lover here to take us on a journey. As usual, I'm not going to read you the back, just in case there are spoilers. Let's get started. Chapter 1. Morley Manor Here is how the book starts. If Sarah hadn't put the monkey in the bathtub, we might never have had to help the monsters get big. But she did, so we did, which, given the way things worked out, was probably just as well for everyone on the planet, especially the dead people. I bought the monsters at a garage sale. Actually, it was more like a whole house sale. And not just any house. It was Morley Manor, the huge old place at the end of Willow Street sixth grader anthony is from owls roost nebraska in the middle of the midwest in the united states he and everyone else knows that morley manor is the scariest house in town it's a big place with three towers and is constantly getting struck by lightning when old man morley passes away without any will or heirs the new owner holds a sunday sale to get rid of all the junk inside before they tear the place down on monday Anthony and his little sister Sarah are being looked after by Grandma Walker while their parents are at a convention, so they ask if her if she wants to go with them to the sale. She says no and is uncomfortable talking about it. Inquisitive Sarah asks why, and Grandma Walker says she'd rather remember the ho- house as it was in the past. She's been a little odd ever since Anthony's grandpa passed away, which was hard on everybody. So Anthony and Sarah walk through pouring rain on their own. Another reason why Morley Manor is so scary is that all the kids in town know that something terrible happened there 50 years ago, but none of them know what it was. Maybe Grandma Walker knew. There are tons of people there for the sale, curious about the old house. They're all very quiet as they look around because the place is very intimidating with its high ceilings and dark wood. Just being inside gives you a spooky feeling, Anthony really enjoys looking through all the weird stuff there is to buy. Candle holders shaped like demons, figurines, chess sets, but they're too expensive. He just bought a new trading card pack, so he has even less money than usual. While Anthony and his classmate snoop around a a stairway with a sign that says, Absolutely no one passed to this point, Sarah takes him away to show him something. In the library on a table, there is a wooden box carved with interlocking circle designs. An old man found it behind some old books and showed it to her. She thought it would be good for holding a special deck of trading cards when Anthony goes to swap events. Agreeing, even though the box is currently locked, Anthony decides he really wants it and goes to the sales lady to haggle a price, but doesn't have enough money. He convinces Sarah to help him out. Not only does she also have some money with her, she is also a better talker with a sweet face. She ends up getting a hat along with the box for Anthony. Chapter 2. Monkey Business Back at home, Anthony is immediately bitten by his mother's pet monkey, Mr. Perkins. A pet monkey sounds cool until you actually have it in the house. He's loud, smelly, and cranky. The bite on Anthony's ankle isn't that bad, but it startles him so he drops the box, which Mr. Perkins runs off with. It takes Anthony, Sarah, and Grandma Walker chasing after him to get the box back. Using a set of miniature screwdrivers gifted to him by his grandpa, Anthony gets the box open a little ways, but is terrified when fog spills out along with an eerie green glow. Something shocks his hand and the lid snaps back shut. Convincing himself that it was just static electricity, Anthony goes to eat lunch and watch Scooby-Doo with Sarah, but his curiosity is unbearable. This time Anthony gets the lid off, only to discover another lid. It says, Martin Morley's Little Monsters. Open not this box, lest my curse fall upon you. Ignoring the warning, Anthony lifts the lid to find a set of five-inch metal figurines, each carved in the shapes of monsters, each with their own nameplate. They are Gasper, Albert, Ludmilla, Melisande, and Bob. Gasper has a lizard's head and a man's body, and he's wearing a lab coat. Albert is a bit shorter. He's a hunchback, quote, a typical mad scientist's assistant, unquote. Ludmilla is a vampire with a cape and fangs. Melisande has snakes for hair. And Bob is a crouching werewolf. While Anthony is admiring the level of detail that went into these figurines, he hears Sarah shout for help. Taking Albert with him, Anthony runs to the bathroom where Sarah is trying to give Mr. Perkins a bath. There's not much Anthony can do, since he knows he'll get bitten if he gets too close, so he watches his sister wrestle the monkey into the water. The whole bathroom is soaked and everything gets wet, including Anthony and his Albert figurine. Afterwards, he shows Sarah the monster set, which she agrees is pretty awesome. At dinner, Sarah sees the newspaper lying out and points to a picture she sees in it. That's the old man who showed me the box you bought today. Anthony reads the article, and it's an obituary for old man Morley. They try not to think about it and head to bed. Anthony takes one more look at his new figurines and is upset when he sees Albert might have been damaged by the bathwater. However, when he looks closer, he sees that one of the hunchback's little hands that got splashed is now fleshy and the fingers are beginning to move. Chapter 3. Just Add Water Anthony tries to put the box away and go to sleep, but he can't stop feeling guilty for leaving this poor tiny creature locked away. Then again, "'What will happen when he revives Albert completely?' "'Eventually, he puts on his robe and gets up, "'stopping by Sarah's room on his way to the bathroom. "'She's scared of Albert's moving fingers. "'Maybe he's that way for a reason,' she suggests. "'Maybe he's evil.' "'Maybe whoever froze him was evil,' Anthony replies. "'There's only one way to find out. "'The siblings go to the bathroom, fill the sink, and dunk Albert in. "'The water glows bright green and bubbles like a science experiment.' Within moments, the tiny person crawls out onto the edge of the sink. As soon as he looks around and spots the two enormous children, Albert dives back into the water to hide, so Anthony has to pull him out. Soon, Albert realizes that he's the small one. I think we've got a little problem here, he says. The kids ask Albert where he's from. Brooklyn, originally, he says, in New York City, then I lived in Transylvania for a while. He's absolutely shocked to find out he's in Owl's Roost, Nebraska, because that is where he lives now. Last he knew, the year was 1948, and he can't believe it's been more than 50 years. Martin did this, he shouts, then demands that the rest of his family be woken up. Anthony and Sarah feel really bad for these poor little frozen people stuck there for half a century. They bring Albert with them to fetch the box, and he's distraught to see them, especially Oh, boss, boss, what has that maniac done to you? When Anthony asks whether the other monsters always looked like that, Albert simply says, I'm not worried about how he looks, you idiot. We can change that. It's the fact that he's been shrunk into a statue that has me upset. Chapter 4. The Family Morleskiewicz The siblings put the remaining four monsters into the sink, sending water everywhere, and watch the family reunion, Anthony shuts the door just in case Mr. Perkins gets any ideas. All the little monsters are horrified when they see the giant kids, but Gaspar the Lizard Man just sighs. Albert explains the situation, and Gaspar gives such a deep bow that he bumps his long nose on the sink, thanking the children for freeing his family. He introduces them, explaining that Ludmilla and Melisande are his sisters, Albert works for him, and Bob is their dog. Apparently, tonight is a full moon, so the werewolf is stuck looking half-human, rather than returning to being just a dog. The family also explains that they look like monsters, or special, by choice, so only the statue part was done to them. Ludmilla has a very heavy Transylvanian accent, while Melisande speaks through her hissing snakes. Gaspar wants to confront his brother Martin immediately and is furious to learn that their imprisonment has lasted over 50 years and old man Morley passed away a month ago. He also moans to think of someone named Ethel left behind, though he doesn't really want to talk about her. The family needs to get back to Morley Manor, where Gaspar's scientific equipment and ingredients are for magic spells. Both kids think this is weird. In the movies they always use either science or magic to do stuff, but not both. Gaspar says that view is very narrow-minded. It's like thinking that an artist should either paint pictures or make sculptures. But not both, he says. But what law says you can't combine things? After all, the ancient Greeks used to paint their statues. Anthony and Sarah then have to inform the family that Morley Manor is due for demolition in the morning. This really pushes the little people's nerves too far. Melisande's snakes writhe around, Ludmilla flaps around as a tiny bat, Bob howls, and Gaspar laments like a tragic hero in a play. Sarah gets them all to calm down, saying they'll just take the monsters over tonight. Gaspar says that not only is this the one way to get them unshrunk, it's also how the family will return to their other home, which Melisande says is beyond the starry door. To ease Anthony's concerns about what a bunch of monsters might do to him and his sister when they're full-sized... Gaspar leads everyone in a pledge of friendship. Thus speaks the family Moleskevich, they say together. Chapter 5 Gaspar's Story As soon as Anthony opens the door, Mr. Perkins rushes in and leaps at the monsters. The tiny people defend themselves, Ludmilla turns into a bat to annoy him, Bob the werewolf snarls, and Gaspar helps launch Albert into the air at the monkey. When he's had enough, Mr. Perkins flees, though Melisande feels bad for the animal. At 11.45 p.m., the kids are dressed and ready. LaMilla and Melisande ride with Sarah, Albert and Bob sit on Anthony, in Anthony's pockets, and Gaspar sits on Anthony's shoulder. The rain has stopped, but it's dark uh, as they walk through town. As they walk, Gaspar tells his story. I was born in Transylvania, nearly a century ago. I was the second of a set of twin boys. My brother, Martin, beat me into the world by 13 minutes and 13 seconds. In those days, Martin and I were identical not only in face, but in feeling. Our minds and our hearts were as one. We thought the same thoughts, felt the same feelings, and the thing we felt most strongly of was curiosity. One evening in the summer of our twelfth year, both our sisters had been born by then, though Melisande was still but a toddler, Martin and I scaled the wall of an ancient, half-ruined castle that stood a mile from our village. The castle was said to be haunted, "'Martin and I set out to prove that it was not, "'though we half hoped that it was. "'We had told our parents we were going to be camping for the night. "'Our real plans were more daring. "'I doubt either of us would have attempted such a thing on our own, "'but together we would try anything, no matter how foolhardy. "'We spread our blankets on the floor of the Great Hall. "'As night fell, we heard strange rustlings and stirrings. "'We tried to explain them away. "'Rats in the walls, the wind coming through a broken window.' "'But then we heard, coming from below us, "'a moan that was unmistakably human. "'Or at least, something like a human. "'Are you ready for this, brother?' asked Martin. "'I'm at your side,' I affirmed. "'Martin always took the lead in this way, "'claiming it was his right as elder, "'a fact that sometimes annoyed, sometimes comforted me. "'But when it was time to move, we always went together. "'Side by side, we descended the castle stairs, "'searching for that moaning. "'Suddenly Martin grabbed my arm. "'We stopped.' In the darkness ahead of us loomed a tall, robed figure. Not solid, not real flesh, but seeming to be just a milky glow. It reached out to us, and the sight sent autumn leaves whirling through my heart. My first thought was to flee. I probably would have, had I not had Martin at my side. Together, we stood our ground. What do you want, strange spirit? This spirit as if freed to speak by Martin's question, told us it was a wizard named Wentar. His unhappy shade was imprisoned in the castle walls as punishment for his misdeeds in life. I have since learned that this was not the complete truth. Anyway, Wentar asked for our aid in freeing his soul from its curse. Martin and I were glad to give help, for it seemed like a grand adventure. However, the task he assigned assigned us finding and retrieving a huge jewel called the Heart of Zentarazna turned out to be more terrifying than we could have imagined. It's a long story, and I don't have time to give you all the details right now. Let it be enough to say that in order to free him, we had to use a book hidden in a secret library in the castle's eastern tower. When Wentar told us how to enter that well-concealed room, I do not think he suspected how Martin and I would react to those books. He had offered us gold for our help, but the real reward was the books themselves. We had plenty of books. Our father was a great scholar. But these books... Ah, these books were filled with ancient and forbidden wisdom, the kind of secrets my twin and I had desired and dreamed of finding, had spoken of in low whispers late at night, but had never truly believed we could possess. Oh, how those pages fired our imaginations! What strange paths of discovery they led us to! But there is a reason... Much of that knowledge is forbidden. Soon, Martin and I were tampering with forces far beyond our comprehension, walking an edge of danger that we barely understood. Then one night, Martin fell through a hole in the world. It was the most terrifying moment of my life. Worse, even, than the first instant when we saw Wentar. It happened one midnight when Martin and I were in the forest, tracing a maze in the center of a clearing. It was stupid of us, the magic we were playing with was far beyond our understanding. "'but we had talked ourselves into thinking it was a good idea. "'This is a special specialty of teenage boys. "'Martin, who always insisted on going first, "'was walking the path ahead of me. "'I followed, holding a lantern. "'All of a sudden I heard him cry out. "'Then, in an instant, he disappeared, "'just vanished right before my eyes. "'I was terrified and frozen by uncertainty. "'Should I keep walking the maze "'so that I would follow wherever he had gone? "'Should I wait for him? "'Should I run for help?' I called his name over and over, but there was no answer—no sound at all save that of the wind whispering through the trees above me. I have never known if it was wisdom or cowardice that kept me from taking those next steps alone along the maze. Nor do I know how long I stood there. Unable to turn back for fear, I would break the spell and ruin Martin's chance of returning. Unable to move forward for fear, I would disappear myself. I only know it was long enough for my body to ache with the effort of holding still yet not long enough for morning to come. Finally, in a burst of green light, Martin did return. He was Martin, yet not Martin, for something about him was different. His spirit was darker. Sorrow colored his eyes. And of what had happened, where he had been, he would not speak at all. As time went on, that reticence grew. Where once there had been no secrets between us, now there were many. I no longer knew his heart as I once had. Despite this horrifying experience, we did not cease our visits to the castle library. If anything, Martin was more eager than ever to continue our investigations. They were thrilling, yet my heart was heavy, for my twin and I were never again as close as we once had been. The years rolled by. We grew stronger and bolder in our knowledge. Albert came to work for us, which is a story in itself. Our family prospered. When our parents died, Martin and I took on the care of Ludmilla and Melisande. The war came, and we survived that. Then, shortly after peace arrived, Martin decided we should move to America. Something terrible is coming, he kept saying, an evil almost beyond imagination. He was right, of course. The communists came, and a grayness descended on our homeland. As Gasper finishes his story, the group arrives at Morley Manor. Chapter 6. The Five Little Monsters and How They Grew Passing through the rusty gate as the rain starts again, Anthony and Sarah step inside Morley Manor. It feels less scary than an old house in a storm should, since it feels like the little monsters belong there, and the monsters have assured them that they are friends. Then again, a clock chimes midnight even though Sarah saw some old lady buy all the clocks earlier that day. The place was cleared out during the sale, and the Morley family is deeply saddened to see the damp, the mold, and the emptiness. Gaspard directs them to the stairway Anthony saw before, with the sign saying, Absolutely no one passed this point. As they climb, they hear a big crash below, but the lizard man assures them that the house makes sounds by itself all the time. Just don't open any doors without asking us first, whispers Ludmilla. Anthony is freaked out, but the five-inch-tall monsters can't get into the laboratory without help, so he has to stay. At the top of the stairs, at the end of a hallway, there is a bookcase that opens onto an even longer hallway that there shouldn't be room for in the house. They go through a door and end up in Gaspar's huge laboratory, which also resembles a wizard's hideaway. There are books, test tubes, and labeled jars that say things like, Eye of Newt. All of it is covered with dust and cobwebs. Off to the side are five glass cylinders, each about seven feet tall. Gaspar shows them the heart of Zentarazna, an enormous green jewel that the Morleys got back from the wizard Wentar. He directs Anthony on how to put the jewel into a control box, then throw a switch. This causes the cylinders to float into the air so the tiny monsters can step inside. From there, Gaspar instructs Anthony on what to do. The cylinders seal over the family members and fill with green mist as thunder and rain pound against the old house. Anthony and Sarah scream as a crackle of energy fills the room, and when they look up, they see that all the monsters are now human-sized. Anthony is terrified. They're no longer dealing with five tiny monsters. Now there are four adult monsters and a full-sized werewolf. Gaspar is particularly scary with his lizard mouth full of sharp teeth. He shouts in triumph, his voice now deep and loud. The others are just as excited, jumping around, howling, hissing, and turning into enormous bats. The family tries to thank the children, but Anthony and Sarah can't help but step backwards in fear. Gaspar is understanding, the family tells them thank you, and the children start to leave. A little sad the adventure is over, despite how scary it is. However, when they open the door to walk out, someone is standing in their way. CHAPTER 7 A WENTAR'S TALE the man-like being standing at the door was tall, taller than Gaspar, and dressed in a dark blue robe. At his side hung a leather pouch. His pale face, peering from beneath the shadows of a hood, was long and lined. His dark purple eyes were the most frightening things I had ever seen. Even so, he looked almost human. Almost, but not quite. It is Wentar, the Transylvanian wizard from Gaspar's story. Though Gaspar wants to know where he's been all these years, Wentar tells them that there is no time to explain that. They must hurry to save Gaspar, Ludmilla, and Melisande's brother Martin. This is very confusing, since Martin is supposed to be dead. Ludmilla is furious and bares her fangs, thinking Anthony and Sarah lied to them, but Wentar assures her that's not true. The reality is that Martin was replaced years ago by some other entity, though it was still Martin. Everyone is confused, and Gaspar is sure that Wentar is going to make them pay a hefty price for more information. But Wentar admits that he owes the family, Morliskovich, a large debt. He says they must speak quickly and get through the starry door before morning. Here is what the text says. Now, what do you want to know? Gaspar hesitated just a moment. Then, with a sly look on his lizardy face, he said, Tell me what I need to know. Wentar smiled, which made it look as if some invisible fingers were pulling up the sags of his pale, droopy face. Oh, very good. You've learned a lot since I last saw you. I've suffered a lot since you last saw me. Wentar shrugged. The two things often go together. All right, gather round. Quickly, there is much to be done, not much time to do it, and some things you do need to know before we act. I assume, by the way, that you have told the others of all that has passed between us back in the old country, Gaspar? Gaspar nodded, an interesting effect now that his snout was at least two feet long. Gesturing to me and Sarah, he said, "'And I have given these youngsters a quick version of the story.' Wentar glanced at us, and a troubled expression crossed his face. "'It would be best to send you two home immediately,' he muttered. Before I could protest that I wanted to stay and hear his story, he added, "'However, I fear the danger is too great for you to leave Morley Manor at this moment, which made me want to get out of there immediately.' At Gasper's urging, Wentar begins, He starts by explaining that Wentar is not actually his name, but his job title, which comes as a surprise to Gaspar. When asked what what that is, Wentar says, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, an explorer, an observer, a reporter, a listener, a judge, sometimes, primarily an admissions officer. Not a wizard, though I do have some magic at my command. I suppose the most likely term would be an alien. I work for the Coalition of Civilized Worlds. Gaspar is rather offended that he never knew this before, but when Tar assures him that it was much easier to let two overactive teenage boys assume he was a ghost back when they first met. Now there are bigger problems. He explains that years ago, when Martin fell through a hole in the world while the twins were exploring a maze, he ended up in a place called Flinduvia. Time passes differently in other worlds, so they had plenty of time to take him prisoner and send a clone back to our world in his place. This copy of Martin had his personality along with other additions, which is why he always seemed different after the maze incident. Wentar figured this out just very recently when the Flinduvians called the clone back to their world. Now, Wentar and the family Morliskevich, along with the children, have two objectives. One, save Martin from the other world, and 2. Prevent the Flinduvias from taking over planet Earth. Chapter 8. The Starry Door Anthony asks why the Flinduvians want to take over, and Wentar admits that he and others like him have been trying to figure that out. Yes, Earth is a beautiful planet, but is also very damaged from everything humans have done to the environment. Before they can discuss it more, Wentar realizes something is coming. The Flinduvians are coming. Everyone runs. Albert the Hunchback picks up Sarah to carry her, and Melisande takes hold of Anthony's hand, hissing for him to stay with her. They run down the corridor and pass through a sort of curtain, which feels like an electric shock. Anthony looks back at it to see only a shimmering wall of blackness, though it begins to bulge as something else tries to push through. They come to another doorway, though this blackness is marked with a circle of pulsating silver stars. Anthony looks back again to see a purple creature with fangs tearing its way through the barrier. Wintar touches the circle of stars in a special order. Then the door opens to reveal a black void filled with stars. He chooses one, steps forward, and is swallowed by the void, followed quickly by the group. Anthony is too scared until he looks back again and makes eye contact with the horrible creatures trying to come after them. Filled with terror, he lets Melisande pull him through the starry door. Quote, I felt as if I were being stung by a thousand bees and kissed by a thousand butterflies all at the same time. Unquote. Anthony wakes up in a green field with flowers, only to realize the grass looks more like broccoli and the red flowers are very sharp and the sky is purple. Sarah observes that this isn't Nebraska, where they were. Ludmilla says it isn't Zentarazna, where she expected to go. Wentar says they are safe now since whatever was chasing them can't follow through the starry door. He leads them off down a hill, and Anthony enjoys the sproingy grass and sweet air. But both he and Sarah stop when when the group approaches a lake and they see something inside it. Chapter 9. Water Guys The text says, The creature that stood dripping at the edge of the water was about four feet high. Even though it had arms and walked upright, it looked sort of like a cross between a frog and a fish. A spiny crest ran from its head to its butt. Huge, goggling eyes were set above a mouth so wide that I figured if the thing yawned, the top of its head would fall off. It had gills, but no scales. Its skin, which glistened in the sunlight, looked like mottled purple leather with a light coating of slime. Fortunately, Anthony likes frogs, so he's not as scared as he normally would be. He watches as the frog fish person speaks in a series of croaks and bullfrog rumbles. Then Wentar replies similarly. The water guy's name is Chug Rug Lala Opsalala Rugum Bup Bup, or Chuck for short. He welcomes them, as long as they come in peace, and agrees to help them. Wentar has the group lie down on their backs. Then he sprinkles something over them and mutters a chant while Chuck splashes water on them. They wait five minutes before being allowed up and Anthony is astonished to discover he can now understand the croaks and peeps of his language. He always thought that extraterrestrials would use science for this sort of thing, but apparently magic is how it's done. They can also breathe underwater now because Chuck wants to take them into the pond to meet his mother. At first Anthony is hesitant, hanging back with Melisande and Sarah, but he wants to be brave and steps in, while Sarah follows right behind. The water on this planet is cool and lemony smelling and it's weird going in with your clothes on. He's nervous about what might be down there, but feels better when Gaspar pops back up to tell everyone to hurry up. Sarah and Anthony go in together and they are amazed by how cool it is to breathe water in and feel good. They can also see well. There are all sorts of fish here with googly eyes or ribbon-like fins, along with vibrant plants swaying. Anthony finds out he can also speak though it comes out strangely in the water. Above them is the silvery ceiling of the lake. As they swim deeper after Wentar and Chuck, the water presses down on them. The water guy leads them so far, they end up in open water over a cliff, beyond the drop-off. It's incredible to look around, until Anthony realizes it wasn't a cliff after all. Chapter 10. The Mother of All Frogs A frog creature like Chuck sits in the middle of the landscape, bigger than a house so big it looks like a giant statue until it looks at them. It spits out a hundred-foot-long tongue, and Anthony tries to take Sarah's hand to swim away, but Wentar beckons them over after crawling out of the giant's mouth to perch on its nose. Gasper urges them all forward, and they learn that the enormous frog person is Queen Gunk a Gunk Gunk Ipsen a Ribbit. She is the mother of all the frog people. Unfortunately, to speak with her, they must go inside her mouth. This idea is met with horror from everybody. Wentar points out that she is a very powerful monarch who is being very hospitable, so they shouldn't complain, and swims off with Chuck. Once again, Gaspar rallies the family, and the children follow. As soon as the group is off her nose, the queen opens her mouth and closes them inside. Wentar provides a magic light in the darkness. They settle into into a place about the size of Anthony's bedroom, sitting on the giant frog person's tongue. Greetings to the Wentar of Artists and his companions," the Queen rumbles in a booming voice. She and Wentar exchange pleasantries, then he, she gets down to business, curious that he is traveling with seven other people when normally he seems to work alone. He confirms that this is odd, but for good reason. They are being pursued by the creatures of the Red Haze, which the Queen already knows about. Apparently this is an alternative name for the Flinduvians, and describes the incredible rage they fly into. Wentar is sure they are up to something, and the queen doesn't know either, but she suggests maybe one of her 2,413,579 children might know. The place shudders as the queen sends out the irresistible water call, and within five minutes someone responds. The queen lets them out of her mouth, and they meet Chuck's brother, who they call Unk for short. They all sit down to talk, but Unk is unable to answer their questions clearly lying that he doesn't know anything about the Flinduvians. Chuck tries to make him speak, but instead he swims away. They catch him, and Anthony has an idea. He has everyone hold Unc on his back so Anthony can hypnotize him the way he used to hypnotize frogs back home by gently rubbing their belly. Chuck is scandalized, but it works, and Wentar is able to ask Unc questions. His answers surprise everyone. The Flinduvians want Earth for its ghosts and they want to use them for batteries. Chapter 11. Where is the Land of the Dead? Having worked as a Flinduvian agent on this planet, Unc only knows what he's overheard. He says that Earth ghosts have some sort of special energy that can be used to fuel a Flinduvian weapon. Everyone is horrified by this idea, and Gaspar says that it's the most immoral thing he's ever heard. Anthony's mind is racing, wondering what happens to ghosts when they are all used up as batteries. He worries about his dead Grandpa Walker. Chuck takes his brother away for the Queen to deal with. Now Wentar, the family, and the children have to figure out what to do next. They need to investigate the Flinduvian plan, save Martin, and warn Earth somehow. Now that the enemy is aware of Anthony and Sarah, they can't go home, so they'll be along for the ride. No one on earth would actually believe them about the Flinduvians, so the only thing to do is warn the ghosts directly in the land of the dead. Wentar says, It is a world between life and death, a place where the lost and the rebellious, the stubborn and the misguided, wait and plan and grieve and mourn. It is not the right place for them to be. Even though the dead should move on to what is next, Not every soul is ready to let go of its previous stage of existence. Various things can hold them back, sometimes pain, sometimes anger, sometimes simply unfinished business. Sometimes it is that they cannot let go of those they love. Sometimes, very rarely, it is joy that holds them. The land of the dead is a realm of great souls and small, a place that is not a place. Grief runs there like flowing water. Solace, too, though most ignore it. Some souls never see this place. Some stay no more than a day. But others, stubborn or blind or in deeper pain than most, may remain for centuries. When Sarah asks how you get to the land of the dead, Wentar says the easiest way is to die. But that's not the only way. The second best way is through a connection to someone who died recently. Wentar goes around the circle. The Morley family have uh, been locked in a box for 50 years, Plus, the clone of Martin didn't actually die because he was called back to Flinduvia. That leaves Anthony and Sarah, who reluctantly admit that their grandfather passed away three months ago. Grandpa Walker was a stubborn old fellow who didn't like to go anywhere without Grandma Walker, so it's possible he's waiting for her. For the sake of the planet, the siblings agree to make the journey. Chapter 12 A Family Divided Back out of the water, the group makes a plan. Wentar will go to Flinduvia with Ludmilla and Albert, while Gaspar leads the children on a journey to the Land of the Dead, with Melisande and Bob along with them. Just in case the impatient Flinduvians are waiting for Gaspar's group back at Morley Manor, Wentar gives him a sonic disruptor to buy time with. Gaspar puts the silvery disc into his lab coat pocket. They return to the place where the starry door had been. It's gone, so they have to wait for it to reappear giving Melisande time to reminisce about her pets on Zentarasna. Anthony asks what exactly that is, and she says, It's the place we would rather be. It is hard to say goodbye when both groups are going on such dangerous missions. As the Morley family hugs each other, Wentar shakes Anthony's hand. You have been brave, but there are greater challenges to come. Much depends on you and your sister. Do not lose courage, and do not forget the power and strength that comes from the ties of love that bind a family together. Albert also comes over to thank Anthony for breaking the spell that had them stuck in a box. Wentar, Ludmilla, and Albert disappear through the starry door on their way to Flinduvia. Then Anthony, Sarah, Gaspar, Melisande, and Bob take their turn. Back at Morley Manor, everyone is concerned about how much time has passed. It's dark outside. Has it been hours or days? Remember, this book was published in 2001, before kids would have their own cell phones, and the Morley family have been frozen for over 50 years. Plus, somebody bought all the clocks during the estate sale earlier in the book. Anthony and Sarah run up the street to find a newspaper box, and are relieved to see that only one night has passed. However, Anthony is less relieved when he realizes that today is Monday. Chapter 13. The Original Package It is now 4 o'clock on Monday morning, and though the kids don't have school because it's a holiday, Morley Manor is set to be demolished. Gaspar and Melisande react to this news anew, since a lot of time has passed since the first time they heard it. This means they have to hurry. Gaspar asks Anthony and Sarah to help him and Melisande return to being traditionally human. The children are surprised to learn they change out of their monster forms, while Melisande is dismayed. Apparently, the transformation process is very difficult to do here. While Bob the werewolf is a bit different, Gaspar and Melisande chose these appearances. Back in the lab, everything is how they left it. The heart of Zentarazna is still in place, and even the kids' raincoats are still there. Gaspar explains how to work the equipment that will change him and Melisande back to their human forms. He says, Now listen carefully. I'm going to show you how to operate the equipment. But there is something else, something more important. This is not going to be pleasant for Melisande and me. We will plead for you to stop the process. You must not do this. No matter how we beg or scream, no matter what we say, you must not stop the transformation. Do so. To do so would be catastrophic. Is that clear? Feeling uneasy, chil- the children follow instructions. The two Morley siblings go back into the glass tubes they used to become full-sized. Then Anthony and Sarah push the buttons and pull the levers they were told to. Sparks crackle, green mists, fills the tubes, and power skitters across the equipment. Immediately, both Gaspar and Melisande begin to scream. They pound on the glass, fall to their knees, thrash about. Sarah is terrified and begs Anthony to turn off the machine, but he refuses. "'No, he told us this would happen,' he says. Even when Gaspar begins pleading, saying he was wrong, Anthony keeps going. Sarah tries to pull the shutoff lever, but Anthony stops her. "'This isn't the time to be nice.' He's just as afraid of Melisande and Gaspar's cries as she is, but Gaspar had been deadly serious when he told them that stopping the process in the middle would be disastrous. Anthony has to tackle Sarah to keep her from doing anything, letting her go only when he hears the three loud snaps that mean the process is done. Although Sarah is distraught, Gaspar and Melisande step out of the tubes unharmed and returned to human form. They're both very handsome, with raven black hair. Now they want to change their clothes, but there aren't any in the house due to the rummage sale. So, the group has to make an emergency trip back to Anthony and Sarah's house. When they step outside into the early morning light, Bob flops on the ground and rolls around, then crawls out of his clothes, revealing himself as a normal cocker spaniel. Now the group looks relatively normal, aside from Gaspar's lab coat and Melisande's snake dress. When they reach home, Melisande quickly gets Mr. Perkins the monkey to quiet down so the children can sneak past Grandma Walker into their parents' closet to get some adult clothes. Eventually, they get the Morley siblings looking acceptably normal. Gaspar says, Now Melisande and I will go wake up some poor lawyer and try to save Morley Manor. It's not going to be easy, but we should at least be able to stop the Wreckers for a day. After all, we are the rightful heirs. In the meantime, you two get some rest. I want you fresh and ready for our trip to the land of the dead. Chapter 14 Past Meets Present Left at home, Anthony goes to bed and sleeps till noon. He comes downstairs to find Grandma Walker kneading bread dough, assuming the kids stayed up late watching TV, and that's why they slept so long. While he and Sarah think about cereal, the doorbell rings, and Grandma Walker lets in the people who say they're friends of the kids. Gaspard, Melisande, and Bob the dog come in to tell them the happy news that they have gotten the demolition of Morley Manor postponed. Grandma Walker is unsettled to hear about Morley Manor, which leads her and Gaspar to take a closer look at each other. She recognizes him from years ago, and he in turn realizes that she is Ethel, his fiance from the time before he and his family were turned into statues and hidden away. Grandma Walker also knows Melisande and Bob, and insists on knowing what is going on and where they have been. Fifty years ago, Grandma Walker was a young woman, younger than Gaspar, who lost her fiancé when he disappeared suddenly. Anthony wonders how much she knows about all the magic and science stuff, including Gaspar's old lizard head. He tells a new tale. Our real troubles started when I discovered the secret of the starry doors. I was angry because I realized Martin had known it for some time and had not shared it with me. Of course, that was when we still thought Martin was our real brother, said Melisande. "'Gasper sighed. "'It changes so much to know the truth, "'and we haven't had time to think through all that it means. "'Anyway, since Martin had not told me what he was doing, "'I returned the favor and did not tell him what we were up to. "'But with Ludmilla, Millicent, Albert, and Bob at my side, "'I began to explore other worlds. "'One planet in particular, Zentorazna, held a great fascination for us. "'In that place, people had learned to shape their own bodies as they wished, "'to change them as suited their fancy.' Since Melisande and Ludmilla had grown tired of all the attention they got for their great beauty, they quickly embraced the idea of taking on a strange image. "'We tried several,' said Melisande. "'It was fun, like changing clothes in a dressing room. And not nearly as difficult to do as it is here,' she added, turning to me and Sarah. Grandma shot her a glance, and I got the sense that they had not liked each other all those years ago. "'Of course,' said Gasper, Albert was always Albert, and Bob's wear problems had started back in Transylvania. They are who they are. It was Ludmilla, Malisand, and I who played at shapeshifting. In late October of 1948, there was a town-wide Halloween party. The last night I ever saw you, murmured Grandma. Gasper nodded. The three of us had decided to go in our altered shapes, which seemed like the best of all possible costumes. Alas, that was the night Martin discovered what we had been doing. A great argument broke out when we got home. Martin pulled out a strange weapon, something I had never seen before. And that's the last thing I remember until I found myself standing on the edge of your bathroom sink, looking up at Anthony and Sarah. Gaspar and Ethel, Grandma Walker, are very emotional. For her, it's been fifty years since her fiancé disappeared. For him, it's only been a day since he saw her, and now she's an old woman. Grandma Walker says that a lot of people suspected Old Man Morley killed the whole family, but there was no proof and the town of Owl's Roost simply labeled him as a scary old guy in a creepy house. Now that everything has been explained, Grandma Walker announces that she is coming with them to the land of the dead to see Grandpa Walker. She doesn't want her grandchildren on such a dangerous trip, but doesn't want them to be home alone, so Anthony and Sarah are still coming along. The group, now one person larger, returns to Morley Manor, passing by a parked bulldozer. It scares them all to think how close they came to complete disaster. They go to the cellar where they are closest to the magical ground, descending an extra-long stairway that the Martin clone dug into the earth. Gaspar is sad to think of the resentment he felt towards a brother who wasn't really here with him. In a small room, they lie down and join hands, closing their eyes in the darkness to focus on Gaspar's spell that will help them go deeper into themselves as incense burns. Anthony thinks of his Grandpa Walker, how much he wants, his, wants to see him, And suddenly he's above and out of his body, connected back to it by a silver thread. The others are floating there with them, including Bob, the confused Cocker Spaniel. They are in a, quote, "...vast space filled with a kind of milky mist. Floating through it were the figures of people, some of them sharply defined, others soft around the edges, so it was hard to make them out. Their moans and mutters filled the air." Grandma Walker leads the way, floating up to a man she calls Horace. Chapter 15 Family Reunion Grandma Walker cries spirit tears, while Grandpa Walker seems to have many emotions. He looks strange, quote, As if all the ages he had ever been, all the faces he had ever worn through the years, had combined somehow. His wrinkles were gone, but his eyes were old and wise. Unquote. He's transparent like everyone else, but he doesn't have a silver thread leading back to a living body. Grandpa Walker is shocked to see his family members, not only here, but alive, and even more shocked to see the Morley siblings looking no older than they were when they disappeared. He doesn't really take them seriously when Gasper says that dead people like him are in danger, and Gasper has to to explain in greater detail. There exists a great and powerful alien race, a group without pity or mercy. These people, the Flinduvians, have found a way to use the souls of Earth's dead to power a weapon they have created. If they should take you, sir, the result would be a second death, a permanent one, a death not of the body, but of the soul itself. Or perhaps not. We don't really know what happens when a soul is used in this weapon of theirs. It could be far worse than mere oblivion. This gets Grandpa Walker's attention. Gaspar asks if there's a leader of some kind they can talk to, Though Grandpa Walker admits he's not sure, since he's only been here a little while and spent that time thinking and pining. I never thought I'd hear someone say, take me to your leader, to a ghost, Sarah comments. Horace, Grandpa Walker, admits that he's miffed to see his wife here with his old love rival Gaspar. Though what he's truly jealous of is the fact that everyone else is still alive, that they have a life to return to. While there's uncertainty about how to pass the warning along, the group gives Horace and Ethel a few minutes alone to themselves. Anthony looks around at all the floating ghosts, who pretty much ignore them. Sarah doesn't like it here. Gasper agrees, uh, agrees but assures her, This is not where you will spend eternity. This is a place for those who have not yet moved on. Finally, they interrupt the, gra- the grandparents to see if Grandpa Walker has any idea about what to do. He and Gaspar go back and forth, to no avail, and Anthony ends up getting fed up and shouts into the void, ''Help! We need to talk to someone! Who's in charge here anyway?'' This sudden outburst makes Melisande laugh, and that gets the ghosts' attention. Chapter 16 Ivanoma The ghosts floating around them all turn their heads to stare at Melisande and the others with hungry eyes, longing for the joy of life and laughter. It's unsettling, but Anthony seizes the opportunity to call out and ask if anyone knows who's in charge. No one is in charge here, they say, but perhaps you could talk to Ivanoma. The woman who makes this suggestion isn't sure they should stretch their lifelines that far, but leads the way towards this Ivanoma, a being that is neither he nor she. As they move through the land of the dead, Anthony can see bits and pieces of the living world, shadows of it, Then, the ghost woman takes them far down to a lake of ice, to which is chained a creature that is both beautiful and enormous, about a hundred feet long. It has two vast wings that stretch out across the ice. One side of its lovely face seems to be almost a frown, while the other side is almost a smile. Tears flow constantly from its eyes. Groups of ghosts huddle close to it. When the group gets close, Ivanoma lifts its head and stretches out their arm to greet them. Why have the living come to the land of the dead? They ask in a voice like a whole choir singing. The group lands in the palm of Ivanoma's hand. This is what Anthony observes. We stood in the center of Ivanoma's hand, and it lowered us, to hold us right before its eyes. Its eyes. If I had a hundred years, I couldn't tell you what it meant to look into those eyes, except to say that it was like drowning in pain and beauty and I was afraid I might never be able to look at the regular world, at anything else, again. My mother told me once that the memory of pain fades. She said if it didn't, women would never have more than one baby. I think that must be true for other things as well, things like beauty and love. If the memory of gazing into those eyes, each of which was a yard wide and several thousand miles deep, had not faded, I doubt I could move in the world today. I would only sit, and remember. Everyone is quiet until Anthony asks if the being is an angel, and Ivanoma nods. They are here because they once chose the wrong side of an ancient war, and now they chain themselves here by choice. Anthony is also the one to explain the situation with the Flinduvians, and the angel's frown is heartbreaking. Ivanoma says that five souls have been ripped away from the land of the dead, though they did not know why and Ivanoma will warn the dead of what is coming, though they have promised to remain bound and will do nothing more despite their size and power. After that, the angel lays their head down, and the group is released from its beautiful spell. In an instant, the group is back in their bodies, possibly helped along by the angel. However, they quickly realize Ivanoma made another mistake. Chapter 17. Grandpa Anthony wakes up with everyone else, only to discover he has a hitchhiker. Grandpa Walker saw an opportunity to tag along and ended up in Anthony's body, so now Anthony can hear his voice inside his head. At first, Anthony freaks out and talks out loud, but that makes the others worried about him, and Grandpa begs him not to tell anyone, since it will make Ethel mad. So Anthony listens to his grandfather and doesn't tell anyone. Unfortunately, this means he has to silently listen to Grandpa's jealous commentary as Gaspar helps Grandma walk her to her feet. A little shaky from their meeting with the dead, as well as an angel, the group goes back upstairs. They're all worried about what will happen. Not just to them, but to the others who went to Flinduvia. Fortunately, Wentar, Ludmilla, and Albert are waiting for them. With them is a skinny, dark-haired boy about Anthony's age, and Gaspar exclaims, "'Martin!' It turns out that Gaspar's twin brother has been held in suspended animation for almost, er, most of a century. He only speaks Romanian, since he was kidnapped back when the family still lived in Transylvania, but Anthony and Sarah still have the translation spell to help them understand. The situation is awkward. Gaspar doesn't know how to interact with a child who is his older twin, yet also so much younger now. And it's equally strange and terrible for Martin. Their sisters are equally unsure. Meanwhile, Bob and Albert have never even met the real Martin. Finally, Ludmilla steps forward to hug the boy, but her vampire fangs scare him. Martin pushes her away, then Gasper, and begins to cry before running for the door, stopped by Wentar's sleep spell. Anthony is stuck between the conversation being ha- le- had with the people in the room and the one he's having in his mind with his grandpa. Eventually, he focuses on wet- what Wentar is saying. He says that despite Martin's delicate state, he has already told them why the Flinduvians want Earths dead. Specifically, human ghosts will be used to reanimate dead Flinduvian warriors. Backing up a bit, Wentar explains that the use of starry doors isn't unlimited. Only ten people from one race can pass through in one day. If a whole bunch of people could come through at once, it would be easy for one planet to invade another. However, there are sometimes errors, just as it was an error for the Coalition of Civilized Worlds to allow a violently angry race like the Flinduvians into the organization. Before Wentar can continue, the Flinduvians arrive. Chapter 18 The Flinduvian Plan Flinduvians are six to eight foot creatures made of pure muscle. They only wear little shorts to show off their strength, along with weapon harnesses. Instead of shoes, they have hoof-like feet. Instead of fingers, they have scaly tentacles. They have ugly, bulging snouts and eyes. Their mouths are full of silver fangs with a black snake's tongue. Ten Flinduvias, Flinduvians have crowded into the room, and their leader speaks. While no more than ten members of a species may pass through a gate, that restriction applies only to the living, We can transport as many corpses as we wish. Once we have them here, we can inject them with the spirits of Earth's dead and bring them back to life. What good will that do you? asked Gasper. You can't expect Earth's dead to fight on your behalf. They'll have no choice, said the Flinduvian cheerfully. All we need is their life force to animate the body. Once we install them, their actions will be completely under our control." Once the warriors are reanimated with human ghosts, they become zombies. It is very unpleasant, and the Flinduvians don't want their to use their own warriors for that, instead allowing them to ascend to warrior heaven. By studying Martin, the Flinduvians learned that human ghosts get so attached to life that they don't hesitate to become zombies. Just then, Martin wakes up and sees the Flinduvians. Oh, it's you, Dice Rock. It's about time. I was wondering when you were going to get here. The family is shocked that Martin was willingly used as bait to lead the Flinduvians here, and Grandpa Walker inside Anthony's head is terrified of the zombie plan. Just then, Dice Rock's armband beeps. It looks as if we have a ghost near us right now. Might as well collect it while we have the chance. They hone in on Anthony and point a collecting gun at his head. Chapter 19 The Collecting Jar Anthony feels a horrible wrenching sensation Quote, like being pulled apart at the seams, unquote. In total darkness, he realizes that rather than take Grandpa Walker, the Flinduvians had torn his soul out of his own body. He felt like he was dreaming. Screaming did nothing. After a while, Anthony notices that he can hear and see what's happening outside the collection bottle. Grandpa Walker is shouting, but pretending to be his grandson. This causes Grandma Ethel to lunge uselessly at the Flinduvian, though Gaspar holds her back. The Flinduvian just laughs, saying the ghost will be let out soon enough to become a perfect zombie slave. The collection bottle is dropped into a pack, and Anthony is left as a living ghost, alone with his thoughts. He manages not to panic, and decides it's best the Flinduvians don't know they don't have a real dead ghost. Hopefully Grandpa Walker won't try to keep the body. After thinking in circles, not knowing how much time has passed, Anthony finds himself being taken out of the pack to be put into a corpse. CHAPTER 20 I BECOME A FLINDUVIAN The Flinduvians carry in a big, plain coffin with markings on the top that match the little box that the Morley family were once stored in. The box is stood upright, and the dead warrior is revealed, and Anthony's soul is pumped inside. Here is what he observes. At first I felt only a horrid clamminess, as if I had been wrapped in a piece of raw liver. Then, slowly, the body began to come back to life. I could feel the alien blood pumping through its alien veins. I could have screamed again, but I couldn't. The body was not mine to control, merely to inhabit. My eyes blinked open, and I could see again. Seeing the world as a Flinduvian was very different from seeing it as an earthling. First, colors did not look the same. It wasn't as simple as, they, as them looking lighter or darker than usual. They looked like nothing I had ever seen before. It's hard to explain clearly, but I have to tell you, it was pretty freaky. Second, Flinduvian eyes are much sharper than ours. I could see things I had never seen before. The texture of clothing, the flecks of color in the eyes of someone twenty feet away. I could count the individual hairs on Gaspar's hand. But along with that sharpness came something that I can only describe as interpretation. Every object I saw seemed like either a potential danger or a potential weapon, sometimes both at once. And every non-Flinduvian being, even my sweet old grandmother, looked like a menace and an enemy. If it hadn't been for the lucky fact that I had no control over the body I was in, I might have rushed forward to crush her. I did not like being a Flinduvian, but at least I could see why they were so nasty, though I wondered if they saw things this way because they were so nasty, or they were so nasty because of the way they saw things. Using a black control box, Dice Rock orders Anthony, or rather the dead warrior named Zarax, to step forward, and he does so involuntarily. Dice Rock is very pleased to show this off to his enemies, gleefully explaining that a million corpses can be carried through the starry door, then reanimated using human ghosts. Earth will be conquered in a matter of hours. Locked inside the body, Anthony thinks of all those ghosts he saw, of his grandpa stuck here, of his friends and neighbors who have died over the years from old age or accidents. The thought of all those people being used for this is so appalling that Anthony flinches, Then, he realizes that the body actually twitched. By concentrating very hard, he can make his arm twitch again. For fear of attracting attention while all eyes are on him, Anthony stops. He doesn't have control of his eyes, so he just stares straight ahead and is able to see Sarah crying. Then, Dice Rock orders him to close his eyes, and he does so. The darkness reminds him that being trapped in a coffin of zombie flesh is much worse than going naturally to the land of the dead. Chapter 21, The Haunted Body Fortunately, Flinduvians have a strong sense of smell and hearing. He can smell fear, anger, and confidence equally as people in the room speak. The Flinduvians are waiting for a superior officer called Javaro to arrive. They want to get rid of the enemy group, Wentar specifically, but need authorization. Meanwhile, Anthony keeps trying to make the warrior body move. Quote, This adventure had started in a haunted house. Now I found myself in a haunted body. Unquote. He gets used to its size, power, and differences. He's nervous that settling in too much will get him stuck there, but he doesn't have a choice right now. Poking around, Anthony notices that even though the warrior's soul is gone, his memories are still here. The memories are bleak, unpleasant, fearful, and speak of a Spartan culture aiming to create hardened warriors. Anthony feels sorry for the children who grow up in this society. But right now, he has to focus on saving his own people. He doesn't know what to do until he hears a voice in his head. All we have to do is let the coalition of civilized worlds know what they're up to. This voice terrifies Anthony, specifically when it says, This is Martin. Chapter 22. Martin's Story Martin quickly explains that after years of Flinduvian experimentation, putting him in and pulling him out of bodies, he's able to do it on his own now. At the moment, his own body is sitting in a corner, looking sullen, and no one is paying attention to it. Since they have time, Martin tells his story. Keep in mind that there will be some questions from Anthony's first-person perspective. When I first fell through the worlds into Flinduvia, I was nearly as pleased as I was terrified. At last, it seemed, my quest for greater knowledge of the worlds beyond ours was to be rewarded. Little did I know that the reward would carry with it its own punishment. But that was the case... For in stumbling into Flinduvia, I had entered a place that was as close to a living hell as you will ever find. Given what I had learned about Flinduvia from being trapped in the alien body, I had no trouble believing this. When I tumbled out of our world, there was a Flinduvian waiting to snatch me up. They had detected the reckless experiments Gasper and I were conducting, and had created a kind of trap, hoping we would stumble into it. It took very little time for them to make a copy of me and send it back to Earth— not a clone. The clones came later. This was a quick copy job, little more than an animated puppet to hold my place. Within a few days, it was replaced by a more sophisticated copy, and a few weeks later, another. Finally, they had a perfect clone of me, which they programmed as they wished, then sent off as my final replacement. It studied both my family and our world, sending back information to its masters. But because they had a need to make it believable, the clone had a combination of human and Flinduvian characteristics, which is one reason that it shared some of the great secrets with my family, such as the Starry Doors. The Flinduvians were unhappy about that, partly because if it had been discovered that they had let the secret out to a planet not part of the Coalition of Civilized Worlds, the punishment would have been swift and severe. But they felt the risk was worth the possible gain. Meanwhile, I was being held prisoner, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say I was kept as an experimental lab animal. I was poked, prodded, and analyzed as completely and impersonally as I, as if I were some important new species of insect. Yet after a time, some of them began to talk to me, to tell me about things. I got the feeling they looked on me as we might look on a particularly intelligent pet, someone to share your troubles with. Certainly a Flinduvian would never share his troubles or doubts with another of his own species. That would have been seen as a weakness, which is the most dangerous trait you can display in their society. Now, time in Flinduvia flows differently than it does here, at a ratio of about 3 to 1. That's one reason they were able to send back that first copy in what seems such a short time to Gaspar. For every minute that passes here, three minutes go by in Flinduvia which means that I, myself, have been there for the equivalent of over 200 years. There was such weariness and sorrow in that statement that it nearly broke my heart, but it also confused me. If you've been there so long, how come you still look like you're only 12? Because this was the body the Flinduvians thought would work best as bait when the Wentar and others showed up. Besides, even though I have been several different ages, physically speaking, during my time on Flinduvia they liked keeping me as they had first captured me. I think it was a symbol of their first step towards the conquest they dreamed of. Anyway, as the years rolled on, as the first century moved into the second, I earned more and more privileges from the scientists who guarded and studied me. One of those was the ability to occasionally don other versions of my body. I could be myself as I would appear at twenty, or thirty, or forty, and so on. They kept dozens of copies of me in their lab, and with their technology it was not that hard to move from one to another. Which is how I was able to come back to Earth when I discovered that they had called home the clone that had been taking my place here. They knew I hated being in the old man versions of my body, so they didn't put many safeguards on them. Late one night I slipped into one of those bodies, then through the starry door that leads to this house. I was horrified to discover that the contents were being sold. I had only a little time before I would be missed in Flinduvia. I didn't want to take my family back there, but I had to make sure they were taken out of the house before the place was destroyed. That was why I showed your sister the box where my clone had placed my frozen, shrunken family so long ago. How did you know about that? I asked him. The Flinduvians told me, the fools. Because they have no family bonds at all, and because they knew I had many conflicts with my brother and sisters, my captors simply assumed that what they had done to my family wouldn't make that much difference to me. They actually thought it might amuse me. His voice grew scornful. Vile Flinduvians, they did not understand the ties that bind the family Morleskiewicz. Blinded by their own cruelty, they could never guess the bonds of blood and loyalty I share with my brother and sisters, no matter how much I might have fought with them. Nor could they ever begin to realize how deeply I desired to free my family, how I would plot for decade after decade to release them. The two souls stop talking when they notice the Flinduvians fighting. Someone called Frax thinks they shouldn't have to wait for Javaro, while Dysrock tries to maintain authority. Shoving past, Frax goes for Grandma Walker, and Sarah jumps in the way, screaming as the Flinduvian lifts her off the floor. Chapter 23 The Red Haze Anthony is enraged and suddenly gains complete control of the body. His eyes snap open and a red haze clouds his vision. He charges forward, ignoring Dice Rock's commands, and punches the commander in the face. Martin laughs inside his head. Next, Anthony goes for Frax, who drops Sarah. The two Flindufian bodies battle. Quote, I was in a frenzy, a creature of the red haze, a roaring, shrieking, fighting machine. Unquote. As the other warriors get involved, Gaspar takes the opportunity to use the sonic disruptor Wentar gave him a while back. All the Flinduvians, including Anthony, are left squirming on the ground covering their ears. Flinduvians are trained to withstand pain, so they start to reach for the device to shut it off. But Anthony has Martin to push him forward and his family to think about. A new fight breaks out as the warriors try to get the disruptor, but Anthony's red anger makes it possible to shake them off. Also, the Morley family has joined the fight Bob bites ankles, Albert tumbles and jumps, Gaspar punches one, his sisters hold down another. Even Grandma Walker beats on them with a shoe. All the while, the sonic disruptor screams in the Flinduvians' ears. Finally, Anthony gets hold of the disruptor and herds the warriors into the corner. Then, Wentar steps forward, saying it is done. Chapter 24. Martin's Choice Anthony wakes up, having passed out from the pain of the sonic disruptor. He's still inside the Flinduvian body with everyone gathered around. At this point, Grandpa Walker comes clean, admitting that it's Anthony in the monster body. Although Sarah and Grandma Ethel are distraught, Wentar says it was wise not to let the Flinduvians know about the mistake. He was probably able to take control of the zombie body because he is a living spirit, not a dead one, which was the key to overcoming the warriors. Unfortunately, Wentar isn't sure how to reverse what has happened. Everything else is already taken care of. The Coalition of Civilized Worlds took the warriors away and put their planet under quarantine. But Anthony and Grandpa Walker are still stuck. Sarah suggests using the collection gun again. It does nothing. Apparently, the same Red Haze Fury that saved them may have bonded Anthony with the Flinduvian body since he was actually living in it for a while. Grandpa Walker volunteers to try taking Anthony's place and going to Flinduvia as a spy. But Martin stands up at this point and says it should be him. He's lived more than 200 years on that planet, way longer than he ever did on Earth, so he'll probably be more comfortable doing this than returning to his old life and family. Martin and Gaspar step aside to talk for a while before they go through with the new plan. Then Martin's body slumps and he is inside the Flinduvian mine alongside Anthony. He works his way around, pushing Anthony out until they can try the extraction gun again. Next thing he knows, Anthony is back in his own body alongside Grandpa Walker. The grandfather and grandson have a quiet conversation. Then Grandpa Horace leaves, blowing a kiss to his granddaughter and telling Ethel he'll wait for her. Epilogue A year has passed since Anthony and Sarah released the monsters from their box, and Gaspar proved himself the rightful heir to Morley Manor. He and Albert are fixing it up, while Ludmilla and Melisande mostly stay in Zentarazna. When they come to visit, Gaspar invites Anthony, Sarah, and Grandma Walker to dinner. Usually the sisters are in their familiar vampire and medusa bodies. Anthony's parents don't really understand their connection to Morley Manor, but they feel like he's matured recently and appreciate his help in their flower shop. Anthony remembers what Grandpa Walker said to him. Anthony, all your life people are going to tell you to stop and smell the roses, but they won't usually tell you why. So let me give you one good reason. The one I learned too late. There are no gardens in the land of the dead. You have to embrace life now, Anthony. Now, while you're still part of it. Grab it to you. See it. Feel it. Hold it. Love it. Don't let it pass you by, boy. Don't shut yourself off from it. Because the truth is, you never know what moment is going to be your last. What scent, what sound, what smell will be the last one you experience. Make it good. Make it real. Probably pretty good advice, coming from a dead man. The End It's time for our favorite game. Did the artist read the book? I think the simple answer is yes. Everything on the cover lines up. Gaspar the lizard man in the lab coat, Ludmilla the vampirist, Melisande with her snake hair and tight dress, Albert with his hunched back, and Bob the werewolf in clothes, all of them coming out of a small wooden box. This is one of those books that is great to read around Halloween. There's magic, vampires, ghosts, mad scientists, hunchbacks, werewolves, aliens, and a haunted house. There weren't any mermaids, but there were frog people. Did you have a favorite character? Did you think the themes were too dark or perfectly scary for this time of year? Was this book a lot newer than you thought I would pick? Don't worry, next time we'll pick something older. It can be hard to get a clear understanding of each character from a summary like this, so you might have to read the whole book yourself if you want to know more. There are a lot of details I left out for the sake of streamlining the summary, mostly in regards to personality. Each of the Morley members, uh, family members, has their unique quirks that make them individuals. Gaspar is overly dramatic in a sort of Shakespearean way, like, woe is me and merciful heavens. Ludmilla speaks with an exaggerated Transylvanian vampire accident. Uh, I want to suck your blood kind of thing. And Melisande's speech has a lot of hissing when she has her snake hair. We should go. Meanwhile, Albert the Hunchback has a bit of an accent going. Uh, Maybe a bit of British Cockney since he's always saying oi and being snarky. Then again, he says he's from Brooklyn, New York, and Bruce Coville is from New York, so I think I'm misimagining how he's supposed to sound. I also didn't mention that Albert seems to have a little crush on Ludmilla, volunteering to go with her and Wentar on their mission at one point. Uh, at the same time, Anthony has a puppy, a puppy crush on Melisande because she's the sexiest woman he's ever seen in her slinky dress. The same is true for Anthony as a main character in his sister, St- uh, sister Sarah in terms of it being hard to portray their personality in a summary. He's a good kid, but also stubborn and contrarian, and has a tendency to use his status as older sibling to coerce Sarah into helping him out. There are also a lot of times when he feels one way, then quickly feels a different way. For example, he's not really interested in the Morley monster box that Sarah finds, really what Martin helps her find, uh, but he gets really invested in owning it once he has to figure out how to scrounge together the money to afford it. Later on, when he and Sarah think they're done helping the Morley family, he's a bit sad to leave. But as soon as he finds out that they can't leave because it's dangerous, he wants nothing more than to run. Anthony wants to be a brave, decisive, manly boy that his sister respects. But in reality gets picked on by a school bully, gets bitten by his mother's pet monkey, and only has a little bit of power over his little sister. Although Sarah plays a smaller role in the story, Anthony really needs her. Yes, he ends up being a little braver to speak up in certain high-stress situations, but there are times when it's Sarah who knows what questions to ask, when it's time to stop asking questions, and who makes smart deductions. When Gaspar and Grandma Ethel meet again, Sarah knows when to stop asking personal things because it makes them uncomfortable. When she and Anthony go to find a newspaper to check the date, she works out what day it is since morning newspapers are put out super early in the morning, meaning only a night has passed, while her big brother is convinced that a whole day has gone by. Her insightful nature is an asset, and, most importantly for the story, Sarah is someone that Anthony trusts. I didn't go into much detail about Anthony and Sarah's relationship during the summary because it would have required reading a lot of random conversations. Their sibling relationship actually gets a lot of attention throughout the story, since at its heart, this is a book about sticking together as a family. It's clear that even though Anthony and Sarah annoy each other and are at an age where they are basically looking for things to fight about, they do love and appreciate having each other. Anthony can be a bit pig-headed sometimes, finding Sarah's inquisitive nature annoying and not wanting to be lumped in with the girls, Uh, but he also begrudgingly recognizes her intelligence. He constantly mentions that Sarah is a pain in the butt, but he also is capable of admitting he cares about her and clearly admires her ability to read a situation. And Sarah gets frustrated with Anthony for borrowing money he rarely pays back and other big brother antics, while happily going with him to rummage sales and on adventures. When things get scary, she reaches for his hand. Eventually, Anthony doesn't think so hard about holding hands with her since they both need comfort throughout the book. The most important thing about this brother and sister duo is that they trust each other, even if they annoy each other. They trust each other more than any adults in their lives, more than their friends. When Anthony discovers that his little monster toy uh, might come alive, he considers keeping it all a secret, then decides to get Sarah involved. He doesn't go to his parents, his grandmother, his friends. He goes to his little sister. Yes, Sarah can get away with more if they get into trouble, so it helps to have her along, but it's still worth pointing out that Anthony would rather have her with him than be alone. The siblings also think about each other's needs, Sarah actively helping her brother find something at the rummage sale, and Anthony doing his best to protect her. As a funny side note, I read this book when I was pretty young and I had never heard the name Anthony before. For some reason, I thought it was a girl's name. (laughs) It wasn't until something in the book actually stated that Anthony was a boy or a brother or something that I realized I had been picturing a pair of sisters rather than a big brother and younger sister. Uh, I did the same thing a few years later when I read the Maximum Ride books by James Patterson. The main character in those also speaks in first person and is named Max, so I really thought they were a boy until specifically stated otherwise. Now in my 20s, I can see the context clues that point to these characters being their intended gender, but I appreciate my past mistakes because they provide a different perspective on the story. I also left out some stuff about Anthony's grandparents. For example, Grandma Ethel Walker uh, has very poor hearing, so it's easy to sneak around her until eventually she recognizes Gaspar and gets involved with the plan to save the world. When everyone leaves their bodies to visit Grandpa Horace Walker, she is no longer so deaf since she is not held back by her aging body. As for Grandpa Walker, I glossed over the fact that he's incredibly je- jealous of Gaspar. Uh, I think I mentioned it a couple of times, but it just seems to be the, like how their relationship is. We don't get any backstory about the two of them, just hearing that back in the day Gaspar was significantly older than Ethel, which the townspeople gossiped about. Presumably Horace was a bit closer to her age. There are other character dynamics like this that pop up throughout the book. Uh, For example, Albert dislikes Martin, though he didn't realize that it was actually a Martin clone, and Grandma Walker dislikes Gaspar's sister Melisande. Let's move on to some of the interesting story aspects in The Monsters of Morley Manor. What I really loved about this as a kid was that these characters live in a world that uses both science and magic. It blew my mind that the two could be combined, which is exactly how Anthony reacts to this news. And it actually makes a lot of sense. This is a world of planets and alien creatures, but not about space travel and rocket ships. Off-world trips are used. Uh, off-world trips are made uh, via a magical system, the Starry Doors, that transport them instantaneously. And that system is regulated by the Coalition of Civilized Worlds. Here's a question: What is a Wentar? At one point in the book, it's made very clear that the wizard who Gaspar met as a young man, and continues to think of as a mentor, is not named Wentar. This is merely his job title as a sort of planet and magic monitor. I think the author made up this word, uh, which is why it sounds like it could be a fancy wizard's name. I continued to refer to him as Wentar during the summary to keep things simple, rather than switch to THE Wentar like the text does, Uh, since we don't see any other Wentars. I don't believe his real name is ever mentioned, uh, only his planet of origin. And even that isn't clear. The queen of the frog people refers to him as the Wentar of Artis, which I assume is his home planet, but it could also be a region or some other way of defining his territory. We never learn why this particular Wentar is concerned with Earth, a planet not considered clean or intelligent enough to be part of the coalition, other than the fact that Gaspar and Martin helped him out once. Perhaps that's all it is. He accidentally became involved with a little backwater world and later noticed that uh, noticed when things started to look bad for it and stepped in to help. That would also explain why the Coalition of Civilized Worlds wasn't paying attention while the Flinduvians plotted to invade. Earth wasn't worth worrying about. When it comes to the actual science and magic combination, we don't learn very much. It's hard to tell where science ends and where magic begins, which is probably intentional. Gaspar has a laboratory that is filled with the equipment of a mad scientist, which is then powered by a magic stone called the Heart of Zentarazna. The Starry Door combines the magic of instant travel with a deep understanding of astronomy. Even the Flinduvians combine science and magic by creating a gun that collects dead souls in order to make zombies. Perhaps magic is just a word to describe the parts of the universe that even these advanced alien cultures don't fully understand. Some people are able to do math without worrying about every little step, so maybe it's like that. There are other science fiction stories that bend the rules when it comes to technology. For a while, I watched a lot of Doctor Who, and I appreciated that there was an explanation for why all the aliens spoke the same language. The Doctor's unusual and delightful spaceship called the TARDIS an acronym for Time and Relative Dimension in Space, is a little bit psychic and gets inside travelers' heads, allowing them to understand nearly any language. While its methods are special, other alien races are shown to have technology that mimics this ability. In The Monsters of Morley Manor, it's kind of amusing how upfront Wentar is about it it being a magic spell when other sci-fi series work so hard to justify it. Even more mysterious than the magic and science is the appearance of an actual angel in the Land of the Dead. That's not to say that I think Coville was trying to sneak something religious into the text. Rather, I think Ivanoma is a reminder that the world is vast, and even knowledgeable folks don't know everything. The Starry Door takes the characters to other planets, uh, but they have to perform a sort of reverse seance to leave their bodies and visit the dead. It's literally another dimension, separate from the universe where the living bodies reside. This particular one seems to be inhabited by humans, which is interesting. The Flindufians do say that humans cling to life especially hard, while their own warriors die with every expectation of leaving their lives behind in favor of heaven. No one in the story actually describes what comes after death, only that souls have something else to move on to once they've cut ties with the lives they had. Maybe Ivanoma comes from heaven, like Christian angels do. Their beautiful, tragic, winged appearance would support that. Then again, how many other worlds and dimensions and universes are there? The angel resembles the fallen angel Satan because it resides in a place of death on top of a frozen lake. This directly references the portrayal of Satan in Dante's Inferno, including the part about him being punished along with the other sinners in hell. Um residing on a frozen lake at the very bottom after losing some sort of war. In the end, Covill leaves it to the reader to interpret, giving the being a made-up name. In that way, Ivanoma reminds me of the childlike empress from The Ending Story, serene and lovely in a way that is different from everything else around her, entrancing to the point where people would lose themselves in her eyes if she did not turn away. I think Covill... Probably really enjoyed the sad portrayal of Satan in Inferno and utilized some of that when coming up with his own version of sort of hell. However, his version is not meant as punishment in the traditional sense, as no god is mentioned who determines what is good and bad. Instead, it reminds me of Richard Matheson's novel What Dreams May Come. That is another story that talks about layers of worlds and says that people punish themselves in death by torturing themselves with memories and regrets and madness. Once they let it all go, they are free to join the rest of the souls in a better place. Also similar is the fact that one soul can find another in the dark place using their personal connection to them. Perhaps the idea is that uh, (laughs) Coville wanted to create a space that actually kind of exists and that other people like... Dante or Matheson might have accidentally visited somehow and seen a glimpse of and brought back their interpretation to their own works. Coming back around to the science parts of the story, let's touch on the alien races we see in the Monsters of Morley Manor. If you include the humanoid Wintar, there are three of them featured. The Flinduvians seem to be big, purple, and muscular with snouts, fangs, big eyes, tentacle fingers, and uh, hooves. The way Coville describes them makes me chuckle, because he says they wear these little silver shorts and nothing else besides weapon harnesses. Really, they sound like alien bodybuilders. Comical as that is, I left out a few details pertaining to Flinduvian biology as well as culture. The first thing is that their voices are incredibly grating, described as sounding like pebbles in a blender. Their laugh is, quote, a cross between a chainsaw and a werewolf gargling, unquote. Regarding the red haze that is the unstoppable rage they fly into, it's very difficult to stop once it's started, fueled by fighting and adrenaline. In terms of culture, Anthony learns terrible things about their upbringing while inhabiting the dead warrior's body and memories, learning that they are often abandoned in the wilderness to build character or have to fight their comrades for their share of water during training exercises, weeding out the weakest among them while teaching them not to be loyal or kind to anyone. Anthony admits he doesn't want to think about some of those memories ever again because they are so unsettling. It really is a Spartan culture. In ancient Sparta, in Greece, which was incredibly warlike, the only way to really make your family proud was to go into battle and come home victorious or dead. Interestingly, the Flinduvians seem more religious than the human characters do since they actively use the term warrior heaven, like Valhalla in Norse mythology. Despite their bad attitude, they do seem to be a civilized race, and were therefore led into the Coalition of Civilized Worlds, though they won't be allowed off their planet for a good long while after pulling a stunt like this. On the other hand, we have the short frog people from the planet the group visits early on, though we don't learn the name of that one. They're not described in very much detail, so I get stuck on whether to think of them as more humanoid or a lot rounder, like a fat frog lawn ornament. (laughs) Either way, they seem to be small, well-connected, nice community, uh, since they all come from the same huge mother. They are at once individuals while also being at her beck and call. It is stated clearly that none of them can resist the water call, which is why Unk arrives when she asks for information about the Flinduvians, even though he doesn't really want to spill his secrets. Despite their quieter-seeming lifestyle, the Water Guys, as Anthony calls them, also seem to be part of the Coalition of Civilized Worlds, living in peace with other species and treating their planet well. Finally, I want to touch on the story's creepy subject matter. This is a book about a small ragtag group trying to save Earth from an alien invasion by traveling to the land of the dead, doing everything they can to make sure ghosts aren't used to make alien zombies. There's a lot of good Halloweeny stuff here, isn't there? (laughs) Reading it again as an adult, I'm surprised by how many times the subject of death comes up, along with uh, talk about corpses and people falling into other worlds. It's pretty scary stuff if you're not ready for it. As a kid, I was easily scared, so I must have <laughs> must have found this book when I was a tiny bit older. Uh, on the one hand, I liked spooky things. Jade Green by Phyllis Reynolds Naylor is great, and on the other hand, I was easily creeped out by things like The Nightmare Before Christmas. (laughs) You never know which stories will give you the willies or make you feel alive. What did you think of this episode? Was it too short, or do you like this length better? I'm also trying to decide how often to post. Currently, I'm planning to put out an episode every week, if possible. Uh, But what day should it be published? Let me know in the YouTube comments or on Instagram if you prefer Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or a different day. I'd love to hear your thoughts. The next episode will be up by November 6th, uh, depending on how next week goes. Uh, I'm on my way to San Francisco for a little trip. Check out my Instagram at Erica Brickley spelled E-R-I-K-A-B-R-I-C-K-L-E-Y to see trip photos as well as the rest of my collection don't forget to let me know what books you are never going to read i look forward to hearing from you and until next time bye bye earthlings